the National Archives podcast series, Writer of the Month, Electric Shock, presented by Peter Doggett. This talk was recorded on the 19th of August 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Thank you. Um, this is the first question that everybody always says in talks. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. And if you can't, of course, you won't know I've asked the question, so that's okay. Um, thanks very much for that introduction. It's a big book. It's 700 pages, for which I apologize in advance, but it's a big subject. Um, 125 years of pop. Why 125 years, you might ask? Well, I was aware that most histories of pop in the past, there, there, there are two versions of what popular music's all about. There are two theories. Um, the first of which is that the golden era was the 1930s when you had the classic American songwriters in their prime, Gershwin, Cole Porter, Rogers and Hammerstein and so on. And you've reached um, a, a pinnacle of artistic, almost intellectual, clever lyrics and exquisite melodies. And I can see why people buy into that theory and then they see everything after that as an appalling come down. And um, ad actually, one of, one of the writers from that era said, in the 1950s, the amateurs took over. In other words, people who couldn't write music, people who couldn't play music, people who couldn't sing music, and who sold millions of records. So that's one theory. The second theory, which is the one that I grew up with as a rock fan, I was born in 57, I'm old enough just to have wanted to be in the Dave Clark Five when I was six years old. I was a Beatles fan when I was six, seven. Um, and very much a child of the late 60s and then the 70s. So my, uh, my version of history was rock and roll and rock. And as far as I was concerned, anything before rock and roll was to square daddy-o. I just didn't care, wasn't interested. It was my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation. Um, and I don't think I really came across anything to challenge that view of history until I started working for the magazine Record Collector in the 80s, and we'd occasionally get a Frank Sinatra album or something to review a reissue. And I go, oh, that's quite interesting. And then and anybody who's watched BBC4 music documentaries over the last five, ten years will know that the approved canon of popular music has been extended a bit. Besides 50s rock and roll, 60s rock, 70s punk, it's now okay to be interested in 30s and 40s blues, 30s and 40s country music. There have even been one or two things recently about big bands and swing music as well. Um, but you still don't get any sense of an overall sort of picture of popular music. So I, I, I was aware from my own listening, which has grown wider and wider than the older I've got, and from my reading, that there was a lot more to popular music than I knew about, and I've been writing about it for 35 years, I'm ashamed to confess. Um, so the question was, if I was going to write a history of it beyond what people had done before, where do you begin? And there were obvious things. Well, you can start with Elvis, but that's been done to death. And I must admit, if you start with Elvis, my opinion is it's a bit like writing a history of the 20th century, a detailed history of the 20th century, and saying, I'm only going to start with World War II. We won't worry about the Great Depression or World War I. None of that was important at all, starting with World War II. doesn't do the job. Um, I've mentioned Frank Sinatra, um, obviously a key figure, one of the first singers, musicians, for whom young women screamed and mobbed theatres and so on. Um, but again, he came out of a tradition, so you could see that as a starting point, but I was aware there was stuff before that. Bing Crosby was before that, the first of the crooners, 
And actually, I say in the book, when I was young, Bing Crosby was one of the most embarrassing and boring figures around because he was um, a very staid singer, film star, who used to crop up in those awful American variety shows and entertainment shows where they all slap each other on the back and say how wonderful each other is. And he was a bit like my grandfather. Um, so it was difficult to see him as an exciting figure, although, excuse me, as I discovered from writing the book, he was actually, as another commentator has said, one of the first hip white men in the history of America. Um, but I still couldn't find the starting date, and the more I looked at the 20th century, I realized that the two most important points in the 20th century actually both happened in the 19th century, in terms of popular music, at least. The first of those was the invention of commercial means of recording sound and selling it, selling being the important thing. The first experiments in recorded sound, I think, go back to the 1860s, 1870s. But around 1890, for the first time, it was actually possible, if you had enough money, to go out and buy a phonograph or a gramophone, depending whether you were buying discs or cylinders. And you could actually get a weird facsimile of somebody else's recording of a piece of music for the first time. And that, I think, it's almost like an existential crisis in mankind, in the same way as the printing press completely changed the way that we deal with people's opinions because they can be preser preserved for future generations. Recorded sound, it alters the state of music. Before, you actually had to be in the room. You had to hear the person up the front with the harpsichord or the lute or whatever. And the music existed in that second, and then it existed in your memory. If you could play an instrument, it also existed on bits of paper, sheet music, but I've no idea what small proportion of people pre-1900 could actually read music, but it would only be an educated few, I would think. Once you get into recorded sound, into discs or cylinders that you can play over and over and over, you've got a person who's not there singing to you or performing to you. One of the inventors of recorded sound, Thomas Edison, actually said how strange it's going to be in the future. You'll be able to hear the voice of the dead. And it's true, he actually imagined the sort of home recording equipment of the 1890s, he thought, would be for people to, to, to get the reminiscences of much-loved family members, grandparents and great-grandparents, to have them speaking a few words so that they would have this record that would keep forever and ever and ever, so you'd know what great-granny actually sounded like. Um, in, instead of which, much to Edison's surprise, I think, a market arose in popular music. Now that coincided with, in New York and then in London, with the invention of the music publishing industry as a big commercial, ultimately corporate concern. There was a realization that as soon as you were listening to a song over and over and over, whether it was in a music hall or whether it was on a disc, that your enthusiasm for that song after a while was going to pale. And again, there's an, I talk in the book, there's an early Thomas Edison experiment where he's trying to make the process of sound recording perfect. And for a week, he gets his team to listen over and over and over to a piece of Beethoven. And at the end of the week, they're all still happily smiling and so on. Then he tries it with a modern dance tune of the 1890s. And after the second day, his men are starting to drop like flies. And by the end of the week, he's the last man standing because they're so bored at hearing the song over and over and over again. There's not enough musical variation. There's not enough going on in the song. So in order to make the song new, you had to have an industry. You had to have songwriters, professional songwriters, who would churn out songs by the million. And there were some, the uh, most popular songwriters of the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, could write 5, 10, 15 songs a day. And the idea was that they would be heard on one musical tour, or there would be a record, 
And then after the first month, when you were bored to death with that one, well, no problem, there's 300 other songs coming along straight afterwards. And one of the effects of that really, really lasted all the way through to the Second World War, which was that if you, if you look at the dance bands who were huge between the two world wars, um, not so much jazz bands, but the dance bands who, who provided the sort of every Friday and Saturday night entertainment for the average person in Britain and America, they would release eight, ten singles every month just to keep that demand going to fuel the industry. So there's absolutely no sense here of um, art, in, at least in popular music. It's purely um, entertainment. And actually, I argue in the book that that's where popular music begins on record with entertainment, and that's actually where we've come back to today as well. But I, d I, I talked earlier about the fact that there were two things that happened in the 1890s. The, the uh, commercial recorded sound was one thing. The second was the emergence of ragtime which is a huge moment in the history of popular music because it's the first young people's music. It's the first African-American music style that goes around the world. And it's also the first music style that gets used as an insult by older generations. One of the themes of my book is that we all think about popular music as being the voice of young people. It's a voice of rebellion, of anti-authoritarian attitudes. Well, that goes way back beyond hip-hop. It goes beyond punk, rock, rock and roll. It goes back beyond swing in the 1930s. It goes back beyond jazz in the 1920s. It starts with ragtime. Ragtime is the first point where young people's music gets adults so cross that they think it's the death of civilization. And um, civilization has been dying ever since. So I, I was very keen in this book to write that 125-year story, because the more I looked at the history, the more I realized it's not a golden era, a gap, and then another golden era in the 50s and 60s. It's one long story. And so I think this is the first book which really ties up that whole thing and makes one long narrative out of 125 years of history. Just very quickly to tell you about the book, um, 125 years I've explained, it's about music, how the music's changed in that time, also, as the subtitle about the gramophone and the iPhone suggests, it's about technology and how that's changed. And also, the bit that interested me most in lots of ways, it's about how the role of music in our lives has changed. And again, if I take you back to the early days of the 20th century, um, you had to be very wealthy to be able to afford a gramophone. If you were going to buy Caruso records, Caruso, as many of you will know, was an um, Italian opera singer who is still regarded as being possibly the greatest opera singer of all time. So high quality was his music and so refined were his records as artifacts that they actually sold for more than the average weekly wage and people would go hungry for a couple of weeks in order to be able to buy a one-sided disc of one of his arias which I've no idea if they actually played it. Maybe they didn't even have the equipment, but they probably had it up on a shelf somewhere. And so people would come in and, and, and sort of bow to, my goodness, you've got a Caruso Red Seal. That's incredible. Don't believe it. So yes, talking about the way in which, in, in which the music's role in our life has changed. Um, so you go from that. You go from this elite object that only a few people can own. You go from something which is purely intended to, to entertain people, to make people dance, to make people laugh if it's a comedy song or whatever. Um, then you end up in the 50s and 60s with, hey presto, you've not just got entertainment, you've also got a culture arising out of that. 
and I could be here for the rest of the afternoon explaining why you get the counterculture in the 60s. Obviously, lots of um, intellectual ferment, more money for young people, stuff I'm sure you've all heard before. But from the late 50s, particularly through the 60s into the 70s, there is definitely a counterculture, first of all, um, a culture that stands against and outside the mainstream culture, and you get more than ever that huge divide between parents and children in terms of what they're listening to. Um, but also it comes with a whole set of um, intellectual and social attitudes and also politics, political attitudes, where it stands for something beyond the music. You can trace that through into punk, you can trace that through into hip-hop, but I, I argue in the book that really as a culture, as a separate culture and the counterculture, it, it dies more or less with the end of the Vietnam War. After that point, you've still got a music culture, but you haven't got a counterculture in the same, same way. And the main reason for that is that as soon as anything out of the counterculture starts to find an audience, it finds corporations who are only too happy to sell that countercultural thing. And so you get these extremely left-wing, anti-establishment political views being sold to you by Columbia and Sony and EMI and so on, quite a few of whom are also manufacturing weapons and goodness knows what else at the same time. There is a large element of the music business, such as it is these days, which likes to pretend there is still a counterculture and there's still a rock culture, but I tend to think they're living in the past. I think it's a lovely idea, but I think it's very much nostalgia. And as I said earlier, I argue in the book that by the time you get to the 21st century, the primary function of music is once again entertainment. It's not rebellion. It can't be rebellion when you get people of my age and older going to Glastonbury or to music festivals, or people of 18 going to see the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's not, it doesn't occupy the same place in people's lives. It's entertainment, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with, wrong with that. I think that's absolutely fabulous. Starting the book, I realized I was bringing to it 35 years or more of prejudices as a writer. If you're a critic, then you think you're quite something special because you must do just to write in public. And you start to think very quickly that what you think is correct about on every subject. And so you become more and more elitist and more and more snobbish. And of course, I know best because I've been writing about it for 20 years. So I'm going to tell you this is what you should be listening to. This is important. These records you know, are really not worth considering. You shouldn't be listening to this kind of music. That was the first attitude that had to go out of the window because I wanted to write a popular history of popular music as people at each stage of the story would have experienced it. So all the critical favorites, all the, all the records that rock critics like to stroke their bald heads and grey beards to, oh yes, of course, that's a great album. Um, they had to go out because they usually weren't, weren't popular. Nobody was actually interested in them apart from bald bearded rock critics. Um, so I was much more interested in the music that people were actually, real people were actually listening to. And it's, it, I, I find it fascinating. If you go back to the 1960s and you look at possibly, I might argue, that the, the, the um, culmination of pop rocks ambition. You go 19, 1965, 66, 67, you've got the counterculture, you've got um, improved studio techniques, you've got people thinking of popular music as art, but, it, but still trying to appeal to a mass audience and you get remarkable records. I mean, everybody knows the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper. It's not actually one of my favorites, but that kind of thing. People thinking on a grand scale about popular music. What's the best-selling record in Britain in 1965 and 1966? It's the soundtrack to The Sound of Music, not just for one year, but for two years. And if you go around the country, probably the world, and talk to anybody over the age of about five, they will know some of the songs from The Sound of Music, either from TV 
or maybe they've just pa been passed you know, th through the blood, through by osmosis. Um, so those songs have lasted in a way that lots of the great sort of rock classics of that, of that period haven't done. When I, when I talked about throwing out my snobbery, that wasn't the only thing I wanted to get rid of. Um, I also wanted to get rid of lots of the myths about popular music that, that I, I had accepted, and then the more I looked at them, I thought, but that's just not true. I've already mentioned about the idea that Young People's Rebellion doesn't begin with rock and roll. My grandmother, many years ago, I was probably being told off for playing the Rolling Stones or something and been sent to bed. She came up to my room when I was about 13 and said, don't worry, dear. My father, when I was young, said that the Charleston was the most disgusting thing he'd ever seen in his entire life. And um, I talk in the book about the fact that in, th in the early years of what was called Dance-O-Mania, there was a record called Dance-O-Mania to go with it, um, when everybody was dancing before and after the First World War, really shocking things were happening. Young women were loosening their corsets to um, dance at lunchtime. And if their bosses found out, often they would be sacked as a result because of this scandalous behavior. And there's actually an interesting thesis to be written by somebody about women's underwear and um, popular music and popular history. Because if you look through women's magazines, as I have been doing recently for another project in the 1960s, suddenly corsets and so on go out of the window. And they're all wearing skimpy bras and briefs and things. And you've got so much more movement, I would think. I don't know. But um, <laughs> that, so far, I haven't tried it. But. Um, that must have had a huge psychological effect on people. They could actually go out and throw themselves about in a way they couldn't do before. Um, other myths. It's most jazz historians are now prepared to accept, begrudgingly, that the earliest jazz records were made by white people. Um, it's obviously black music. It's African-American music. The history is well known. comes up from New Orleans, spreads, goes up the Mississippi, spreads out to the coasts. But the earliest records, just because of the way that America worked and the recording industry worked, were definitely by white artists. Um, but everybody talks about the blues, which is obviously, again, another African-American music strain, very much linked with jazz all the way through, at least until the Second World War. Everybody talks about the, early, the first blues record in 1920 by Mamie Smith, and then Bessie Smith, and so on afterwards. One of the things I undertook for this book was to try and play um, every hit song or record from 1890 up to the, at least the start of the 21st century, which was both wonderful and complete madness. I wouldn't recommend it, um, as, as a, unless somebody's going to pay you to do it for four years, and they weren't paying me to do it for four years, unfortunately. Um, but it, absolutely fabulous, the kind of stuff that I uncovered by doing that. I've written a few examples down here. Ragtime, which I never understood. I mean, I, I, I recognize a ragtime tune. I didn't know how it worked. And then you, once, you, once you crack it, oh, there's a structure to it. It's four different, you know, it's four different tunes, and they cut backwards and forwards, and they've got these linking bits. Um, I've mentioned the first jazz records, which are like punk or rock and roll. They're just completely out there. People who can barely play, throwing the kitchen sink, literally, because lots of them used pots and pans for percussion, throwing the kitchen sink into these records. Uh, they're completely chaotic. The, the uh, 1920s crooners, which I would have regarded as being one of the most boring things going. And then you think yourself back to the 1920s. And for the first time, it, you, you could actually record using a microphone rather than going direct to disc through a big recording horn. And that allowed singers for the first time before, they used to have to go, blah, 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 like this, 
to be able to be heard and they'd, they'd all be positioned around the room. You know, the singer would be fairly close to the mic, but he still might often be using a megaphone so he could be heard above the saxophones or whatever. Suddenly in the 1920s, you've got intimate ways of recording and it means that people can sing like this. And so you get male singers usually who are whispering into young women's ears. It's very romantic. And this is why the underwear obviously was loosened as well, another reason. Some of those records are absolutely incredible. Once you get past the point of, oh my goodness, this is bland. No, it's intimate, it's sensual, it's seductive, it's very exciting. And so on and on and on um, through, through the rest of the century. But I was playing the hit records of 1917, 18, 19 and going, hang on a minute, these are blues records. Who are these people? And they were white women making blues records. They didn't call themselves blues singers. They, they were vaudeville or music hall but I mention them in the book, talk about the records, and there's basically no difference in, in, in style between these records and the records of the first blues singers. So I'm afraid to say the first blues records, like the first uh, jazz records, are by white people. Also, everybody grows up with this idea that the blues is a cry of anguish from an oppressed people, and they were an oppressed people, and there was anguish in the blues. But blues, like most popular music, was fundamentally entertainment. And it started off, it wasn't one man at the crossroads selling his soul to the devil with a guitar. It was usually a very statuesque black woman in front of a big jazz band singing, singing out. And no matter how painful and agonized the records were, how heartfelt and soulful they were, they were sold as entertainment. In fact, they were sold as a, f a form of catharsis. Um, I was particularly amused to find an advert for a blues record that said, if you want to be happy, then buy our blues. And the record was Victoria Spivy, TB Blues, which is an agonizing <laughs> account of somebody dying of tuberculosis. <laughs> but it's entertainment. Rock and roll, everybody knows rock and roll was the music of the 1950s. And you can choose your king of rock and roll, never a queen, sadly. King of rock and roll, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Elvis is the most usually cited one. And some people go, ah, ha, ha, Bill Haley a couple of years earlier. You play the records, there is full bore rock and roll happening in America in 1945, and it's been called rock and roll as well. It's not necessarily been marketed as it, but if you look at press reviews, they're talking about right rhythmic rock and roll music, um, which is how Frank Sinatra in 1951 was able to make a rock and roll record three years before Elvis Presley ever came anywhere near a microphone. Um, you've all probably seen the, the, the clips on, on TV documentaries about rock and roll in the 1950s, the scandal. Rock and roll has got to go, and they smashed the record. There's three or four clips they always show. And this Negro music, or they probably used a worse word than that, it's terrible, we've got to get it out of our lives. And they always show those clips in conjunction with, understandably, with the film of Elvis Presley pulsating his pelvis in a strange manner, um, or Jerry Lee Lewis, or whatever. But actually, all those clips, the, the music that people were complaining about was not white rock and roll, it was black rock and roll. Because even in 1956, rock and roll equaled black music. It was a word for up-tempo black music. And it was only in 57, 58 that they start to call it rock and roll and meaning white music. And by that point, the black music is known as rhythm and blues. And anybody who's young enough to be interested in modern music knows that rhythm and blues today is an entirely different animal from rhythm and blues in the 1950s. Um, I was always, uh, as a kid, a huge Beatles fan, and I always used to think, Beatles, beat music, obvious, beat group, well, they're playing beat music. But I'd never really understood until I wrote this book, oh, this is shameful, after 35 years, 
but I didn't really understand what beat music meant. And in 1958, when rock and roll was a scandal, no matter how you looked at it, the marketing men decided, okay, this is a bit embarrassing. We, you know, we've got to find a way around this. So they started calling it the big beat. And so rock and roll was out, the big beat was in. Um, and then that became slightly watered down. That became known as teen beat. And so you get your Roy Orbisons and Brenda Lee and Gene Pitney and all these people. They're called teen beat. And if there's more than one of them, it's a group. So it's a beat group. And that's all that was to that story. And the other myth, which lots of other people have punctured, but which I think I punctured probably more fully than any, anybody else has ever done, um, it's the one thing anybody seems to know about the Beatles in America is that America before the Beatles was a desert. And um, there was five years of garbage and Bobby V and Bobby Rydell and Bobby Darren, everybody called Bobby. And then you actually play the music that was in the charts in 1961, two, three in America. It's incredible. It's never been more varied. It's never been more off the wall. Okay, am the amateurs are in charge of the toy shop, but the music they're making is, again, it's completely out there. And it's so, so varied. And then what happens, and it's sad for me to say this as a Beatles fan, is that when they come along in 1964, suddenly all those doors close. Part of the myth is that it took the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to sell black music back to America. But again, look at the charts, it's not true. All the early Motown artists are in the top 40 in America before the Beatles. There are all sorts of blues artists, John Lee Hooker and so on, having hits in America before the Beatles. Um, so that's just like a fundamental myth, which I went, oh, okay, that doesn't stand up. I was just going to read you a couple of things from the book very briefly, because I mentioned early on about music and dancing and how fundamental that was. Let me just read to you one or two reactions to dance from the early days. In short succession, in 1912 and 1913, the formality of the ballroom, and I should point out at this point that even in the 1960s, young girls were still being advised to learn the cha-cha and the waltz because they'd need them at dances. The formality of the ballroom succumbed to such dangerously exotic exhibitions as the bunny hug, the grizzly bear, the turkey trot, the dog bite, the hitchy coo, the London lurch, the fish walk, I'd love to have seen that, and the style that would outlast and eventually encompass them all, the foxtrot. No longer did young men and women flit from one partner to the next to avoid the slightest hint of immorality. Now they were encouraged to pair up for the evening and even press their bodies tight in a manner that would previously have been reserved for married couples and then only in the privacy of their own homes. The editor of the Ladies' Home Journal in Manhattan was so appalled to discover that his female typists were devoting their lunch hours to ragtime that he fired 15 offenders on the spot. In Germany, the Kaiser warned his military to shun families who indulged in the, in the tango. The British royal family let it be known that Queen Mary did not approve, and a magazine with the comforting title of The Gentlewoman described it as the dance of moral death. The Archbishop of Paris wrote a newspaper column denouncing Matango's moral failings. A middle-aged man in Philadelphia was arrested after severely beating his 35-year-old son. If I catch him cutting up any more with a tango, he said defiantly, I'll repeat the dose. The actor Gerald du Maurier declared that all the ragtime movements were only forms of the oldest dance in the world, St Vitus's dance. There was talk of dancers being inoculated with the ragtime fever, of a virulent poison, a malarious epidemic, of ragtime being syncopation gone mad which can only be treated like the dog with rabies, namely with a dose of lead. These various accusations were neatly summed up by one critic. When taken to excess, it overstimulates, it irritates. 
And that's a repeated theme all the way through. The thought that um, almost like having too much caffeine or too many amphetamines for the rock generation, if you listen to too much popular music, not only will your undergarments come off, but also your nerves will be overstimulated and you'll get overtired. And then here we are today. We're in the era of dance music. Ecstatic repetition of electronic, digital, computer-derived rhythms now dominates every party, whether it's a Hoxton warehouse or a works Christmas outing, filled with teenage hipsters or their embarrassingly overstimulated grandparents. There was a scene early in Paolo Sorrentino's ravishing film La Grande Bellezza, which demonstrated this perfectly. To an insistently modern dance soundtrack, Wealthy inhabitants of Rome's decadent, aristocratic milieu throw themselves into a frenzied exhibition of sensuality and physicality, careless of their age and social stature. Nobody holds back asking for the DJ to console them with Motown or the Rolling Stones, the Lombarda or Agadou. To a woman and man, they exist solely in the moment, and this is the moment of dance, and has been for as many years as anyone under the age of 30 can remember. So that's our ongoing th theme through the book, dance. Popular music wants to make you move, slowly or quickly. There is always parental disapproval of popular music. I've already mentioned that. It is the death of civilization. And I quote an Oxford rector, rector of an Oxford college from the 1920s. Our civilization is threatened by dreadful noises, horrible motor traffic, Americanisms, and jazz music. And tied in with that um, is a very strong vein not just in America, but in this country as well, of racism and snobbery, the two usually going hand in hand. Those of you over a certain age will remember the pop rock newspaper Melody Maker, which closed, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. In 1926, when it was the magazine of dance bands, they printed an editorial saying, we demand that this habit of associating our music, white music, with a primitive and barbarous Negro, Negro derivation shall cease forthwith in justice to the fact that we have outgrown such comparisons. And this is Melody Maker. When Louis Armstrong first came over to this country in 1932, he was met with vile insults from the press, who described him as the ugliest man ever to appear on a London stage, an untrained gorilla. The usually, usually liberal-minded Pearson's magazine warned, Negroes invade our theatres. And unfortunately, the N-word does appear quite a lot in this book, as used by generation after generation of archbishops, politicians, and parents to describe the appalling music that their white children was listening to. Talked about all the different kinds of technology and how that, uh, talked about the intimacy of the, the gramophone, sorry, of the electrical recording, and how as a young woman, particularly, you could sit in front of your gramophone at home from about 1925 onwards and imagine this person was whispering to you and only you. And the big crooners, particularly in America, where they had radio shows where they would speak to you as well, it was very easy for a, a, a teenage girl in the 30s to imagine that the voice was, was just aimed solely at her. It's the, it's the first instance, really, of, um, what's the phrase, solipsism in the history of popular music, where you believe only, your, only you exist, the music is out there, and it's all focused on you. After electrical recording, we get all sorts of other improvements in, in, in recorded sound. If you go back to the very, very early days, the reason there are almost no ragtime records with pianos on, and don't forget most ragtime was written on piano, in the 1890s and early years of the 20th century is because the recording horn couldn't pick the piano up properly. It also really struggled with female voices. 
Um, for some reason, male voices, no problem at all, but not female voices. Obviously, the, the, the tone didn't come across well. And suddenly, from the 20s onwards, you can capture all sorts of sound. And then you get into the era of high fidelity, at which point men, and it is usually men, get very obsessed with their equipment, their <laughs> hi-fi equipment, I should point out. I found a wonderful quote from Gramophone magazine in 1925. Um, a record dealer complaining about what happens when, if a man brings his wife to the showroom. In most instances, when a lady is calling with her husband to purchase a machine, her interest is in the instrument as an article of furniture only. Its capabilities as a musical instrument are really of little interest to her. I find that the great majority of them simply do not understand tone at all, although they frequently pretend that they do. They will keep talking incessantly when the most perfect records are being played, and one can see that they really do not understand the music at all and do not wish to. A hi-fi enthusiast that was pointed out by a psychologist in the 1950s was almost always male, often middle-aged, usually single, <laughs> and with a compulsive personality. In some cases, the psychiatrist claimed their record collection represented a symbolic harem. Yeah, sounds about right to me, I think, yeah. From there, you move into, into stereo, and I have great fun in the book with the early years of recorded sound, uh, of, of stereo sound, when record engineers, producers, musicians realized that they could make music move around the room. And um, there was an easy listening, we call him today, performer called Enoch Light, who was known as the king of the bouncing ball, because basically all his music went bong, bong, and you get the same sounds backwards and forwards. And then after that, obviously, you move into the era of the tape, the cassette, where you can start recording your own music, the compact disc, which was going to be the absolute pinnacle of recorded sound, and which, unfortunately, for the record business, also meant that it was possible to steal absolutely perfect copies and reproduce them endlessly. And then we're through to the MP3 today. And I, d I do find it quite ironic, having recently suffered on the, t on the top of a London bus, um, with some young people playing dance music on their phones. And obviously it wasn't about the music. I'm sure they loved the music, but we're talking 13, 14-year-olds. And the primary purpose of this was to annoy anybody over the age of 14 <laughs> on top of the bus. Most of us have probably been there. And the actual sound quality of the music you're getting out of your iPhone, if you haven't got headphones, it's awful. And it sounds exactly like what people were listening to in the 1890s. So we've al almost gone entirely full circle there. It's an epic landscape this the last 125 years i've tried to i've tried to keep away from familiar stories i've tried not to have anybody reading the book and going oh god 1963 profumo jfk is going to get assassinated here go the beatles you know thank you lucky stars oh god 64 you know and on and on 1969 yes here comes the moon landing etc all the things that you see in every documentary i've tried to steer clear of those stories I couldn't ignore the First World War or the Second World War, as I'll prove in a second. But um, I've tried to tell the whole history of, the, of that 125 years in a new way, new anecdotes. Um, and also standing far enough back to be able to see the whole canvas rather than just picking out one or two small bits. Uh, just to give you a taste of um, an era that most people here won't remember. In fact, I'm going to be nice and say nobody here will remember, because it's probably true. I do apologize in advance for the N-word in this, incidentally. In the 1930s, Oswald Mosley, British Union of Fascists, not surprisingly, he wasn't very keen on Jewish music or black music. So um, the fascists had their own musical entertainment. They did actually have their own dance band, unbelievably. 
the, the British Union of Fascists dance band, and they also had a string quartet. The Black Shirt Military Band, playing songs such as Come All Young England. They talk about the Negroid Jewish strata, which is undermining American life. Jew boys wailing jazz and gold-toothed niggers disseminating the culture of the jungle and the swamp. The BBC was apparently engaged in a plot to convince the public that only Jews could play dance music. So the, um, the fascists actually came up with an Aryan dance band, guaranteed white, non-Jewish, non-black. Then in the 19th, 1930s, obviously, the Nazi party. I talk, I talk here about the Nazi party's attitude to jazz, to, to popular entertainment, and of course they carried the same prejudices um, in terms of didn't want anything black, didn't want anything Jewish. But um, unbelievably, the Nazi era was actually the golden era of German swing music. It was just they had to be very careful about what they played. Certain musical motifs were overtly jazz-like and therefore banned. The drum solo, for example, which might have been a bonus to all of us, actually, or anything that provoked an outburst of jitterbugging. Um, if, Ameri if German bands wanted to play American tunes that were strictly verboten, they had to change the title and give them a German title and they could usually get away with it. What amazed me, though, was that, um, as I say here, as the European situation deteriorated, we're in 37-38, British bands continued to accept lucrative invitations to tour Germany. Jack Hilton's outfit had paid regular visits to Europe during the 1930s. In 1937 and 38, the band broke box office records in Berlin. These days, nearly everyone here is doing the Lambeth Walk, a German reporter noted of a song and dance that Hilton had helped to popularise. Another British band leader, Jack Jackson, who became a BBC light programme DJ after the war, was offered the phenomenal salary of £1,500 per week in 1938 if he would relocate to Berlin, take control of Germany's output of light music and record anthems for the Hitler Youth Movement. I was offered a guarantee of diplomatic immunity for myself and the band, he told a British magazine. Although the band then included two star instrumentalists who were Jews, this wouldn't be a stumbling block. Concerned about the plight of Jewish refugees from Nazism, many branches of the British entertainment industry offered a day's profits from their work in January 1939 to a charitable fund. Two weeks later, Henry Hall, who had recently left his post as the BBC's official band leader, led his orchestra on a four-week visit to Berlin. They will play at a state ball attended by high German state officials, the magazine Radio Pictorial said proudly, and provided they're not called upon to give the salute in the middle of a number, everything should go with a swing. Luckily for the project, there were no Jewish members in the outfit. To ensure that there would be no embarrassment, Hall dropped all songs by Jewish composers from the band's repertoire for the duration of the visit. Uh, naturally, I would not want to spoil good relations uh, by behaving in a way that would offend in Berlin, he said. What I'm doing is merely a matter of common sense. I don't blame him for that, as some papers have. A friendly magazine journalist wrote, he's got to earn his living like the rest of us. Their engagement at the Scala in Berlin was a sellout, and Hall's band received a rapturous reception. Anti-fascist campaigners were outraged, but Melody Maker said merely that no one could possibly challenge Henry Hall's patriotism. Less than three weeks after Hall's band returned to Britain, the German army invaded Czechoslovakia, and British musicians no longer had to battle with their consciences about the ethics of performing under a fascist dictatorship. So a little bit of social musical history for you there that you probably haven't heard before. Hopefully you'll find much more of the same in this book. And, um, but if there's anybody who's got any questions that they'd like to ask me about the book or indeed popular music since 1890, then go ahead and I'll try and answer them. <laughs> Thank you.
This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.